Hey there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Thank you for clicking on today's episode. And if you're coming here for the mailing list, special thank you to you once again. Um, we are promoting that mailing list to make sure that we have direct contact with all of you because we don't want to lose that again after our Instagram page um, got locked, which uh, was very unfortunate. And we talked about in our previous episode. So make sure you go sign up for that mailing list. Um, today, we have another one of the Nadolsky brothers, and this is going to be a great conversation. Um, so let's get into it. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. All right, everyone. So as promised, we have another Nadolsky brother, and this is the more jacked one. Um, this is Dr. Carl Nadolsky. Um, so he is triple board certified in internal medicine, endocrinology, and obesity medicine. Um, he is currently an assistant clinical professor of medicine at MSU, as well as a former D1 wrestler, apparently being a top four in the country at some point, if I recall seeing somewhere. Yeah, at some and then, point. Didn't finish that high. <laughs> and then also competitive bodybuilder. And uh, he's also, like his brother, not afraid of calling out quacks on Instagram and Twitter. So if you're not already doing so, go follow him. He is a great follow. So with that, um, welcome to the show. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited for this one. So the first question, I guess, is just to get to know you a little bit better. So how'd you get into medicine? Um, and also, you have a website, docsulift.com. Where did yeah, that yeah, come yeah. from? <clears throat> well, so the medicine history is really uh, kind of going back to our, in fact, yeah, my younger brother, Spencer, and I uh, grew up with, you know, an interest in sports. Our, our parents were teachers. My dad was a biology teacher. So we we're very interested in biology, health, sports performance. Of course, that uh, went through our college years, wrestling, playing football like he did. And, uh, and then how do we incorporate our experience and what we're interested in and what we learn to really help the most people. Um, my mom's sister is a cardiologist. And so we had, uh, and there's some other nursing and stuff in our family. And we thought, you know, and I mean, I'll be honest, my mom was always like, yeah, you guys should just be doctors. And so, you know, so we said, did what mom said. <laughs> and um, we felt like being physicians could uh, utilize what, what we have to offer uh, to the most people. And so that's really what got us into it, and, and even more so into my specialty, and, and even Spencer's, um, you know, interest in, in obesity and stuff. Um, you know, the the diet, the exercise, and the physiology. But going from well, we don't necessarily want to help sports medicine, you know, athletes per se. Um, we can help more people uh, that that really need us, and that's what got me into you know obesity, endocrinology, etc. Um, the Docs Who Lift website. That actually was an evolution, um, and I wish I had more time to really keep it updated uh, more, uh, but maybe we can recruit some people to at least do features on other docs who lift uh, from your podcast and get, get more people just <laughs> to you know, give little uh, biographies of themselves and just share more stories. But it actually started off, we called it leanerliving.com. We wanted to teach people about diet, exercise, obesity, diabetes, um, and then we, we transitioned it to docs who lift at some point just for 
Um, it had to do with some other uh, marketing stuff. And um, yeah, I don't have a lot of time to keep up with it, but um, it's there. And maybe someday we'll have more to it. I know there's a, uh, it was leaner living, right? I know yeah. there's a picture out there somewhere where like you have like an original and there's a Photoshop version of some like young oh, yeah. looking kid yeah, yeah, that was yeah. circling that's, out there. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's always funny to me. Up. And of course, you know, yeah, share, share a nice, uh, good study t- teaching people something, you know, it gets like 24 likes that thing, sharing that just because it's like self-deprecating or whatever. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't, you know, and I think it maybe had to do with it's okay homosexuality whatever i think people that was i don't know exactly but people love that oh my god that thing blew up <laughs> so uh yeah that's okay i've i've had uh, that picture of me photoshopped to a few other nuggets that have circulated the internet without my knowing so <laughs> it's always the things that you don't expect that are going to go out there just yeah. suddenly get a bunch of clicks and just go everywhere oh my um, god but, but aside from the memes you already discussed that in uh, the episode with your brother so we're going to stay a little bit away from that <laughs> All right. um but you are an endocrinologist and um i have experience with endocrinologists because i have hypothyroidism uh-huh. something we'll touch on later in this podcast um, so I know what an endocrinologist is. I've been having like consistent contact with one since I was five years old. Uh-huh. What is that for those who might not know? And what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So basically endocrinology itself is the study of hormones. Hormones are our chemical messengers in the body that go from one organ or cells to another to get things done, basically, um, to, to communicate. And so clinical endocrinology, which physicians who do endocrinology generally do, Uh, We help patients who have endocrine diseases. So that can range from uh, hypothalamic pituitary disorders. The pituitary, as you know, is the the thing right behind your eyes coming out from your brain that tells a bunch of your other organs to make their hormones. Um, Those organs include your thyroid, which is, I tell patients, it's like your heat metabolism hormone that goes everywhere, does all sorts of stuff. Very important for getting into the nuclei and making you know, generating proteins and and having all sorts of um, important functions happen. Uh, It stimulates male testicles, uh, female ovaries to make the sex hormones, makes growth hormone, makes prolactin for for milk letdown. Um, And it stimulates our adrenal glands, which is extremely important, critically important to make cortisol, also um, something called DHEAS. Um, And then the adrenal glands themselves, uh, they also make something called aldosterone, which is a blood pressure hormone. On the inside of those, the adrenal medulla makes our, um, what we call catecholamines, what most people might think of as adrenaline. Um, And uh, we also obviously do obesity, adiposity-based disorders, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, sort of that cardiology, that preventive cardiology, cardiometabolic stuff. Um, And that's a little bit more of my specific niche. Uh, We do obviously thyroid, thyroid cancer, um, type 1 diabetes, which is a different uh, disease state, really. Um, and then there are some other nuanced types of diabetes, mellitus, uh, you know, high sugar levels. Um, that's, that's a pretty good overview, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what uh, our listeners can get from that is that there's a lot to endocrinology. Yeah. And this is also one of the reasons that there's just so many... Um, guess, quote unquote, you can say alternative approaches to endocrinology. And a lot of people that just like pick one specific thing, talk about the adrenal glands. Um, Some of our listeners might have heard of the term adrenal fatigue. Oh, boy. There's all these things out there just because endocrinology is so complex. A lot of people might not understand it. So we're going to try to break some of that down in this podcast. All right. So the question that we have for every single guest, um, just because there's so many different perspectives um, from so many different fields, um, from yourself as an endocrinologist, what does preventive medicine mean to you? 
So, yeah, really, prevention is something we have to find a way to do better with, right? Any way we can help prevent disease, morbidity, death, mortality, all these things, uh, it, that's ideal, right? Um, and so a lot of the things we definitely can prevent from my perspective are really the obesity or adiposity-based diseases like metabolic syndrome, uh, cardiometabolic disease, high cardiovascular risk, type 2 diabetes, um, but also from an endocrinology standpoint, uh, possibly things like osteoporosis. Um, and, uh, you know, and this has to go all the way back to something called primordial prevention, like even before we're born kind of thing, getting back, you know, the epigenetics, mom, dad, you know, we got to keep, we got to start early, really, really early. And then, um, you know, try to prevent those diseases from coming with, with good diet, exercise, sleep, stress reduction, all this stuff. Um, but even, you know, to some degree, we can obviously get into the elephant in, uh, in the room is like COVID. You know, there are lots of other ways to prevent disease and um, vaccinations is certainly one or just reducing our risk of exposure to things. Um, and there are a few other endocrine, you know, issues. Uh, we can prevent some endocrine problems by avoiding certain medications. But sometimes we have to deal with the pros and cons and risk benefits that somebody else might need to give a medicine like like steroids, by the way, glucocorticoids that are like cortisol that are not good for our bones. They're not good for our body composition and our risk of diabetes. And oh, by the way, if we're on them too long, then you end up with adrenal insufficiency and then you really do need to be on steroids. So um, there are a lot of different ways to, to um, consider prevention uh, within endocrinology for sure. I like how you mentioned so many different aspects of it, not only from like the direct cardiometabolic approach, which is kind of the most obvious that we would think of um, preventing obesity, preventing the onset of type 2 diabetes, but also you talk about things before people are even born, like mm -hmm. the life cycles. That's obviously yeah. a huge thing that can be addressed. And I will say that one of the best ways is to uh, teach parents so that when they have mm -hmm. kids or if they have kids, then those habits are developed and ingrained in children. And then it goes down the generations and then it just keeps going. Then you also mentioned medications. Sometimes medications are necessary for certain conditions, but they can also cause other things. Absolutely. So kind of that uh, risk balance of do we prescribe this? Is it is there more benefit to this? Is it more risk? That's also a great way to practice preventive medicine. I think it especially makes sense in endocrinology just because there's such a like delicate balance between all these different things that you have to think about. Yeah. There is one other little nugget that I thought of while we were just talking, and that is something the Endocrine Society has done a lot of work on recently, and that's in the, the realm of endocrine disrupting chemicals. Now people might hmm. hear that and be like, what the heck is that? Or they might say, oh, we know all about that. We're avoiding plastics. Well, I don't know enough about it specifically, to be honest, to tell people what to avoid, but it's being researched and there's something to it for sure. There, there are environmental triggers that if we can, you know, work to figure out really good ways to avoid some of those triggers, maybe there are some of these other endocrine diseases that uh, we might be able to prevent too, and other, all sorts of diseases too. Yeah, I was going to expand and try to ask you a little bit more if you knew those, but it looks like we need to wait for more research. So <laughs> yeah. hopefully we can have you on in like five, 10 years, and then yeah, you can tell yeah. us about but it. But also, you know, like I said, go to, go to the Endocrine Society, um, work on endocrine disrupting chemicals. They have a couple of nice statements and, you know, you can get an idea from it. And even, even patients can go to hormone.org and, and learn, I think, some of the endocrine disrupting chemical concerns. And I'll try to put a link to that in the uh, show notes for those of you guys who are listening so that you can directly click that and go learn about it. Um, but I'm going to ask you now directly about uh, one of the things you talked about with prevention, which is the cardiometabolic risk factors, obesity, 
that kind of thing. And you are also board certified in obesity medicine. So with obesity being so prevalent and the incidents continuing to rise, um, so many Americans are suffering with it. People still don't understand it well. Um, people still think that people are just eating themselves into obesity mm -hmm. sometimes, or they just think people are not trying hard enough. They're too lazy to lose weight, to exercise. What is obesity? Well, so obesity, just by some definitions, is is really the accumulation of adipose tissue, uh, either distributed improperly or just accumulated, that causes harm, and it's a chronic, relapsing, progressive disease of this nature, um, and uh, and it drives what I would call adiposity-based chronic diseases like insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome that atherosclerotic type disease, type 2 diabetes, but also uh, fatty liver disease and, and uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is uh, maybe one of the leading causes of cirrhosis now, um, knee arthritis, uh, obstructive sleep apnea. And, um, and so it's really on that spectrum of severity that we, we need to grade obesity. It's not just weight per se. And the underlying problem, the dysfunction of energy balance is what drives obesity. So yeah, we can, so certainly dietary and exercise habits are a huge issue that we have to help people with because we can prevent it with these efforts. Um, but our genetics set a foundation that really sort of work against us, right? We have the area in our hypothalamus that works on our appetite, satiety, then we have craving hormones, we have hormones that come from our fat cells that people might now know as leptin. Um, we have hormones coming from our intestines, and they're all working together on this energy balance, along with a lot of the other endocrine hormones, by the way, that we, we mentioned. And, um, and it really kind of works against people. Um, combine that with our, our environment. Unfortunately, we have lots of hyperpalatable, high-energy, dense foods that our, our brain wants, you know, food-seeking behavior. And it's hard to make lifestyle changes sometimes, um, even when people are really trying. It's a struggle. Trust me, we see the patients. We get referred the ones who have tried and they're struggling or they succeed, but they regain because all those hormones in a lot of people, it, it drives the weight regain to that sort of set point that you might hear about. We don't have to debate the set point versus <laughs> settling point and all this stuff, but it happens, right? Um, and, you know, if we can get it early on and prevent it, um, you know, that with, with diet and exercise habits that seems to do better. Um, but as you can see, every, everyone's different. And that, and that has to do with a significant genetic component. You know, it's kind of a polygenic disorder. They're very rare, severe monogenic disorders where it's like one gene up in the, usually up in the area of the hypothalamic control of, of appetite that are dysfunctional. Those are rare, but everyone else, it's pretty polygenic, a lot of different genes working against us. Some people, if they do really, really well with diet and exercise their whole lives from youth, they can maintain pretty lean body composition that people don't realize is possible. But then others can do the same stuff and they, they can prevent obesity, but might still struggle. And then there are those where the environment, you know, overwhelms that system and then they have obesity. And then we talk about you know, the staging of severity based upon the complications, all those uh, disease processes. So it sounds like um, somewhat of a chicken in the egg situation. I don't want to say it's exactly like that situation, but obviously it's like very multifactorial. There's so many different things that go into it. But would you say that um, the vast majority of people, if we had an ideal world, 
could be prevented from becoming obese? Or is that something that some people will just become obese because that's their um, genetics, quote unquote, epigenetics, their circumstances? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a hard, hard point. I think we have enough data to show that even with the genes that promote obesity, that with the right interventions early on enough that we should be able to prevent it, at least to the point of being a significant disease process. But again, it's easier said than done in our environmental world. I mean, if you know, if people were stuck on a, a deserted island with the perfect food choices and the perfect food amount and the forced uh, physical activity, yeah, they're not going to get obesity, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's that combination of uh, genes, environment, um, and then all sorts of other things that happen. Medications, by the way, you know, life circumstances. That's why we do a weight history. You know, we figure out, well, mm -hmm. what happened? I have patients who were, have said, I have been overweight. They, they often use terms that I don't use, like chunky or whatever, um, since mm -hmm. I was a, a little bitty, bitty kid, and it just got worse. Then there are people who were marathon runners and then had a knee injury, kept eating the same, and then gained 100 pounds. There are people who had it happen during uh, pregnancies, during divorces. They got put on certain medications, um, all sorts of stuff. And not during COVID as well. There's probably going to be a, a large... It's, yeah, it's gone both ways, actually. Too. There are people who have lost weight because they are not eating out anymore. And then there are people who have gained weight because they thought, oh, we should support the local restaurants and started ordering in <laughs> and, and, and didn't go to the gym. And that was, for whatever reason, their only physical activity. And it's just hard. You know, that's... Yeah, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So I don't want this to turn into the obesity <laughs> podcast yeah. because we could probably easily do oh, that. Yeah. But I want to ask one last question on that. And that's in your clinical experience... Um, what kind of is the successful recipe for helping someone deal with obesity, whether it's like helping them claw out of it or just keep it at maintenance, maybe? What works in your eyes? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, I obviously, I am absolutely a shill for dietary changes on an individual basis. Um, but that's easier said than done, right? So mm -hmm. I go over their individual dietary struggles and then I personalize it. And I use all the data from all the different diets that people like to argue about because they don't have to be mutually exclusive. We can do low-carb, low-fat, Mediterranean pattern, high plant-based diets. We, I always try to reduce the refined components of their diet in favor of whole foods because that automatically shifts that energy balance. We can do different versions of you know, time-restricted feeding, you know, whatever, um, intermittent fasting, we use meal replacements, which have some of the best data, by the way. Um, mm. but the, for, especially the, by the time you get referred to my situation, um, we have pharmacotherapy medications, and then of course, surgeries that do help. And, and we have great success rates, uh, when we use the right medical therapy, um, because dietary therapy on its own, it, it just is hard. All that stuff works against people. And that's why we struggle. But, um, we have pretty good pharmaceutical options and, and more that are coming down the pipeline um, that we're going to be able to, you know, get close to surgery without surgery. Sure. And also, I just want to point out, it sounds like there isn't one like unique diet that's just going to work. Like you just say, go on the Mediterranean diet and it works for everyone. Right. And also, it might take several iterations and approaches. Absolutely. Um, we had a previous episode with um, Leah of Barbell Medicine. Um, Leah Lutz. And then yeah. she talked about how she had so many different attempts to try to lose weight, uh -huh. but like it just didn't work for whatever reason. And then eventually she found the technique that worked for her. 
And then she was able to lose all that weight. So that was a great story. And it was also a demonstration that it isn't always going to be working on your first time. It might not be that first diet. You mm -hmm. just have to find something that works for you. And eventually it'll work, hopefully. Yep. Personalized therapy. We should always all try to help personalize therapy and not get too stuck in a, our own ideology, which, as you know, that's out there. Don't fall for exactly. ideological nutrition recommendations. And we know we know that's all over Twitter sphere and Instagram sphere. <laughs> yeah. Everyone just has their little camps and then causes a lot of harm out there, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask you one other question on obesity, but that's just because it relates to diabetes mm -hmm. as well. And that is um, kind of a little bit about our environments. We talked about how our environments are um, huge proponents. They can sometimes help us. For example, if you're on the island with the perfect mm -hmm. circumstances <laughs> or if you're outside in the United States anywhere, probably not the best circumstances. Right. But what do you do as a physician or um, are there resources you can recommend for like an institution level, societal level for your patients directly? So, um, well, so a diabetes prevention program would be more like an institutional level uh, sort of mm -hmm. concept. Um, but what, what that sort of program will do is going to focus on dietary changes and exercise changes to help prevent diabetes. The key really to preventing type 2 diabetes, which is what we're talking about, by the way, um, is really treating the adiposity, obesity-based driver of that. So, um, you know, preventing obesity. If we have obesity, doing all those dietary things to lose weight. Like I said, the meal replacement strategy is some of the best uh, data from interventional trials. Um, simple things like replacing sugar-sweetened beverages with, with diet versions or water or whatever. Um, changing that energy balance, replacing refined processed foods with more whole foods that'll automatically change the energy balance. Um, and then all those other little dietary things we talked about. And certainly exercise, increasing progressively aerobic exercise volume. And that can be walking, biking, swimming, I don't care what. Also non-exercise physical activity. So taking a quick walk before and after meals, just being up, moving around, taking quick breaks, uh, you know, during your workday. That's even in the ADA guidelines now, the American Diabetes Association guidelines, because the evidence is, is pretty clear. And I'm a chill for weight training, you know, but I think uh, <laughs> we do need to get everyone to get, I tell people, you know, we want to get all your muscles engaged. They're like little sugar and fat burning factories. And we want to get those things churning and burning, use up the fat that's in them that's causing the insulin resistance, get them to send their little sugar trucks out and pull in the, um, the sugar from the blood. And so high, relatively high volume, all use all our muscles and, and, you know, circuit training, whatever, several days a week, um, that app obviously has to be personalized in its own right. Um, and then again, we have medicines to help people with, uh, you know, the, the, basically the dietary effort is what that comes down to, um, for diabetes prevention. And I might have misphrased my question previously. It was kind of more along the lines of how do you protect the patient or individual from like society and like from walking down the aisle, like oh. seeing Oreos and just like doing <laughs> that. But it sounds like more individual counseling, which will probably yeah, be the best bet anyway. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the individual counseling. Ah, boy, on a, on a bigger level, you know, that what, what you might be asking is almost more like policy stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's tough. Um, you know, and it also might... And that's because there, that's where ideology really is a debatable thing, right? Should there are, I think there are states now that are taxing soda, like sugar, sweet, and beverages. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah. again, that's the lowest hanging fruit. I think I've heard that those data uh, show benefit, but that, that triggers a whole nother level of stuff. We, you know, yeah, we could get government to ban all sorts of things. If they get me involved and they're like, Hey, we're going to be a big, big government. I don't want this to turn into a political podcast. I tend to not 
agree with that, but I'm also open to everyone's different political opinions. Um, that's tough. Changing the environment is definitely tough. And, and at, it's, at a, it's a very tough question, but I think um, <laughs> when it comes down to like a lot of these different uh, large scale changes, it does come down to policy most of the time because um, otherwise you're just going to have a bunch of people like doing individualistic things. Then you have one camp saying this, one camp saying that, blah, blah, blah. You're right. Obviously, I'm not going to get political on this podcast either. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to say tax all sugar. We're not going to yeah, say get yeah. rid of all red meat, whatever it is. Yeah. We'll, See, and that's the carnivores problem. off like crazy. Yeah. So that that is what I'm <laughs> sure would come up in a debate is like, you know, the, the slippery slope because, yeah. you know, nutrition science is not perfect, by the way. You yeah. Know? And that's the that's a problem. I, I don't know. That would be tough if I got pulled into that situation to give those recommendations. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. Good thing we had that break to prevent us from going down that rabbit hole yeah, of sorry. policies. I told you. <laughs> no, it's it's all right. That was also my fault. I asked a provocative <laughs> question. So we talked a little bit about diabetes um, in your previous answer. And I just want to get an explanation on this because there's so many different people that blame different things on the development of diabetes. Like it's all the sugar because there's so many sugar sweetened beverages out there. This is what's causing diabetes. There's so many people that are like, oh, it's all the fat that's out there. That's also somehow creating diabetes. And if you got rid of all fat, it's that. So if you were like, let's say not a five-year-old, but if you're a 10-year-old, can you explain kind of how diabetes develops? Yeah. So I, I explain it to people again, don't it's, this is type two diabetes, right? So yes, for sure. It really goes back to that obesity and that adiposity based driven disease process. When that disease of adiposity accumulation, fat accumulation, um, when our healthy peripheral fat cells, right? Our subcutaneous fat cells that we kind of think of in that pear shaped, our hips and our thighs that people may not like, those are storing, uh, the fat cells healthfully when they sort of meet a threshold, and this is, again, genetically derived and, and a lot of other complicating factors, then suddenly they're, they kind of quit playing the game, right? They're not storing it anymore. They go, oh, we've had enough. Well, now that's insulin resistance, right? So those, those are insulin resistant. We start to accumulate the, the fat. Again, the energy balance is starting to get into our abdominal, uh, that's abdominal obesity, visceral fat. That, that drives a very inflammatory milieu of all sorts of bad hormones that make everything else dysfunctional. It gets in our liver. That's, you know, fatty liver, insulin resistance, bad lipids. That's where we make our cholesterol proteins, right? And then it also turns out to get into our uh, pancreas. And this is where if you ever want to read Roy Taylor's stuff out of the UK, he's the one that did some of these intensive weight loss studies to show that we can really prevent and even I know your, one of your other questions is reverse, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll I, get I like there. You're still in the show. <laughs> in, into remission um, by, by losing the right amount of weight and getting rid of the fat that's actually in the pancreas. So ultimately, the final common denominator in, in diabetes mellitus, even in type 1, is the pancreas can't keep up with the demand, right? So, um, you know, in insulin resistance, you have high insulin levels that keep keep things at bay until it can't keep up with it. And so there's a relative deficiency of insulin. And that's when sugar levels go up past to the point of if it's there, then we're going to have all those chronic complications, eyes, kidneys, 
uh, nerves, those microvascular, and then the whole milieu is uh, bad for blood vessels, heart disease, strokes, et cetera. Um, and so that's kind of how I describe it. Now, for physicians or other clinicians, I would suggest looking up the egregious 11, um, sort of, uh, you know, all the different aspects of how type 2 diabetes really becomes dysfunctional. And it talks about the, you know, the adipose tissue situation, the, the pancreas being the common denominator, the kidneys become slightly dysfunctional and, and it holds the, the sugar in. And that's where those SGLT2 inhibitors play a role. Um, mm -hmm. talks about the dysfunctional intestinal hormones like GLP and, and all the roles they play, the um, imbalance between glucagon and insulin. And, you know, this, we get, again, rabbit hole stuff, but we, yeah. uh, it, it is complex. And, but ultimately really, you know, diet, exercise, weight loss, and the, and the right medications can essentially to some degree put diabetes in remission as can surgery. Um, but it's still a chronic progressive relapsing disease, just like obesity itself. And so that's why it's remission, in my opinion. And then it gets into definitions, semantics. Right? Sure. But, you know, I always tell people we're going to try to put it in remission, but it's always there. Yeah. And then one of the clarifying questions I have for you, because I know uh, people might see this as they like scroll through Instagram or wherever they're getting their information. Um, if it's a disease of insulin resistance, then that obviously means that we're like, we're looking at sugar, right? So be, sugar being high is the culprit for insulin resistance. What right. we, we might think, right? Um, so what does that mean about like, sh like your sugar spiking after a meal? Should your sugar never spike? Does that mean that um, that's going to cause a lot of insulin to spike and then you become resistant or yeah, kind of not, how does that work? Exactly. So it's more of the, really the adiposity that drives the insulin resistance itself. Um, you know, there's certainly some prospective studies that, that suggest that, um, but it goes both ways. It includes saturated fat. It includes high glycemic index and load, highly refined processed carbs. Um, those things become less of a problem if we can keep our body composition down and, and keep that uh, adiposity-based insulin resistance down. Um, but for example, I mean, Mediterranean diets without a lot of weight change tend to do better for insulin resistance and, and diabetes and cardiovascular health. We know that for sure. Um, and so there, there is a component to the dietary quality also. Um, any of those, that's what, again, going back to the individualizing the, the person's diet. Yeah, mm -hmm. we should not be drinking sugary sweetened beverages. Is it only the fructose, the high fructose corn syrup? Well, you know, table sugars, you know, not so different. Actually, when you look, start looking at those ratios, mm -hmm. it's the it's the overall amount of excess unnecessary energy intake that just gets accumulated. Um, and then, uh, yeah, when we look at fats, they're the same thing. But there is a there's probably more of a quality um, metric for for fats. You know, uh, eating getting your fat from nuts, seeds, olives, avocado, using olive oil instead of butter. Those things are better. So I, I strongly disagree with the keto zealots that think we can just drink butter and and eat bacon. And actually, if you if you really push them, um, the the real pragmatic ones, the real evidence based ones, will be like, well, no, 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 hold on, that's not right. We're gonna we can do a keto diet that's mostly vegetables. And getting our fat from those sources I just mentioned, and, and that I, you know, I certainly endorse a lower carb Mediterranean pattern diet as a pretty mm -hmm. good step in the right direction. But again, meal replacements, getting rid of some of the obvious culprits. 
And this is why when you talk about endocrinology, it's so easy to get caught in these rabbit holes because <laughs> you just brought up keto yeah. and there's a whole oh, just okay. like jar of stuff you can talk about with keto, but we're not going to go there. Another day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> another day for sure. I'm going to ask you about uh, kind of muscle because you mentioned how muscle kind of acts to um, kind of help your sugar uh, metabolism and just like sugar storage in general. Can you talk a little bit more in detail about how that works and why building muscle might be beneficial for someone with diabetes, type 2 diabetes? Yeah. So I think, you know, going back to more of that simple explanation, I think, uh, you know, I, I like to tell people you should think of all your muscle cells as little sugar and fat burning factories. Um, the more you have, the more fuel you need, um, but also the more opportunity you have to, to use it, almost like a big inefficient engine, you know, that uses up a lot of gasoline, which is in this case what we want to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, studies really generally correlate more muscle and certainly high volumes of exercise uh, resistance training and in the interventional trials um, associated with better glycemic control, um, less weight gain. Exercise is a great for obesity and diabetes prevention, by the way. Not as great, in fact, not great at all kind of for weight loss, probably because of some of those other counter-regulatory uh, things going on, but, um, but it's very good for the health, very good for the diabetes, cardiometabolic health, uh, you know, cardiovascular fitness is really good for risk of death and all that stuff. So exercise is medicine, no question um, about it. It's actually really interesting that you mentioned that. I recently saw that uh, exercise is good for like diabetes and obesity, but not for weight loss. Right. Um, and that was kind of mind blowing to me because when you think of weight loss, you kind of think of preventing the other two and those all three kind of being together. But that was a mind blowing moment for me. And then that just keeps reminding me that I need to keep updated with the literature and keep reading more because I really don't know anything. And, and stuff changes every time, you know, like yeah, that's for why sure. people get confused when the media reports something and then it changes. <laughs> so Exactly. Um, so. Do you think there's anything else we need to touch on with diabetes or do you think no. we have like a good, Again, I want to make sure that our listeners back home have a good understanding yeah. of what's going on here. Do you do think there's anything else to add? <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. So. As like a baseline understanding, you think we're, we're set? Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's move on to the thyroid then. All right. Um, this is a personal favorite for me because like I said at the beginning, I have hypothyroidism. So um, I'm not going to get into my personal story, but the thyroid is often blamed for like weight related, uh, weight related issues. So you might hear someone say, oh, yeah, I can't lose weight because my thyroid is slow. Or, oh, yeah, I can just see anything and I'll never gain weight because my thyroid is really fast. Um, are there really people that have like varying function of their thyroid? And then like when is it actually a problem if it's too fast or too slow? Yeah, so um, a hint of truth in those uh, aspects. Real market obesity, real obesity doesn't generally result from hypothyroidism. Um, but certainly having untreated hypothyroidism uh, is not going to help. Uh, weight gain is certainly a symptom. Um, it's not good for the overall cardiometabolic health for sure. You know, lipid meta metabolism, glucose metabolism, et cetera. Um, so there's a little truth there. It is generally not the primary issue though, especially when it's treated. Now there's some nuance in there, right? There's some you know, 15% of people might really do better with like some little bit of the T3. So T4 is what your thyroid makes most of, makes a little bit of T3. T3 is what is the active actual hormone. And I tell people your body has enzymes everywhere called deiodinases that turn T4 into T3 generally as needed. Well, if you don't have a thyroid or if your thyroid doesn't work, you're we're generally giving you a bioidentical T4 and hoping mm -hmm. your body does the rest. And all the studies really are kind of not too much to say one way or the other, but there's always this slight 
preference for some people for the combination therapy. Um, a slight benefit with the weight loss in some people with the combination therapy. So we have to consider that stuff. And that, again, comes back to pros, cons, risk, benefits. Some people just have the risk is too high. You know, it's, uh, you know they're older, bad bones, heart rhythm risks, et cetera. Um, so there's something to that. On the other hand, having a disease of excess thyroid hormone, again, it's our heat metabolism hormone. So if we have something called Graves as opposed to Hashimoto's, which is the most common autoimmune cause of hypothyroidism, if we have Graves where those antibodies stimulate those TSH receptors on, on the thyroid, we have too much and we get heart racing tremors, heat intolerance, and our metabolism is cranked up. And so sometimes you will hear about those people. They just keep losing weight and they try to eat and keep, their, their appetite goes up, by the way. And they eat more, but it can't keep up with their new metabolism. But that's a very dangerous state. And we got to not let that happen. And sometimes people don't like it that they quit losing weight. Sometimes <laughs> they're like, all right, this is great, but um, not healthy, not, not the right way to do it. Yeah. And then also, I want to ask you, obviously, this is not medical advice or like medical opinions in any way here. But I want to ask you, as a clinician, when should someone know that they have a thyroid problem? Because a lot of people are like, oh, I feel sluggish. Mm -hmm. I'm not losing weight. Can I blame the thyroid? When is it appropriate to go get it checked? Well, you know, um, it's it's probably not unreasonable to almost get it checked whenever. I mean, because to be honest, thyroid is so commonly blamed anyways, there's a pretty mm -hmm. good chance it's going to get checked. But there are people who have much higher risk. So if you have family history, you know, if you have a goiter, which is just enlargement of the thyroid, right? Um, and if you have any other specific symptoms, um, you know, like again, too much thyroid, heart racing, tremors, heat intolerance, increased bowel movement frequency, weight loss. But um, hypothyroidism, unfortunately, has so many symptoms that are also the same as like tons of other problems. Yeah, like exactly. Cold intolerance, weight gain, fatigue. Everyone's fatigued because people don't sleep well. They have bad uh, diet and exercise. The stress is, is here. Um, so I always tell people, you know, you know how these allegedly marketed holistic clinics and functional medicine. They yeah. say, oh, hey, we're going to do all this stuff for your thyroid because you're fatigued. And they're the ones that come up with adrenal fatigue, which isn't real either. But then what they end up doing is they, they're not actually being holistic. So, you know, we want to treat someone's thyroid if there's really a problem. But if it's not a problem and they just say it's a problem and treat it and maybe give medicine that might make people feel a little bit better, but it's not treating the underlying issue – to me, that's a problem. That's where I get really mad at the quackery out there because we need to improve people's diet, exercise, sleep. Sleep is a huge issue here. I mean, everyone coming in with fatigue mm -hmm. thinking it's a hormone, it ends up being their sleep, which by the way, does screw up our hormones in some way, but it's not a you know tumor or a deficiency. Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, but also, you know, broader stuff. I mean, you're, you know, you're going to be a doctor. So, you know, anemia, um, other issues, you know, the other autoimmune issues. There's just so many things that we have to, we can definitely make sure the thyroid is okay, but we have to consider all other aspects too of people. And this is one of the reasons that I brought up this question because um, oftentimes, like, so let's say someone is feeling fatigued, they have like been trying to lose weight, but they're not able to, they end up blaming on the thyroid, they go to their doctor, doctor says, nope, your levels look okay, probably not your thyroid, yeah. but like, let's talk about some other things. But then um, because of what someone might have read somewhere on the internet, they're like, oh, but it probably still is a thyroid. And this person over here says that they can fix me. Yeah. And then they go over there and get like these herbs, like random medicines. I don't know what they give them, but yeah. like whatever it is. And then suddenly they either feel better for whatever reason, yeah. or they just start experiencing harms from right. non, like non-clinical medicine. 
Um, so that's one of the reasons that I brought this question up because I like how you address if it's not your thyroid. Okay, let's talk about what else it could be. It probably is your sleep, but it also could be like anemia and a variety of these other yeah. conditions. So thanks for bringing that up yeah. at the end of that question. All right. So when we talk about hormones as well, um, we talked about like some of those quacks as well. Some people claim that uh, diets can affect hormones. Is there any validity to that? So again, there, there's always a little bit of truth to where they get this because generally they get this from, well, the scientists, the endocrinologists who are researching us. And then they, pre, then they take it into a whole nother level and pretend it's their own. And then they claim that the real doctors are, the, are, are bad, even though it, the information comes from the real <laughs> doctors and scientists. So, um, so yes, for, and we'll, we'll just throw out some examples, right? So um, for example, if you have severe caloric restriction, really low carb, really low fat, um, and, uh, and you lose a lot of weight, well, that changes, first of all, it changes all those weight-related hormones that we talked about, right? I mean, so they end up working against us a little bit. And some of those also um, interact with the, you know, the hypothalamic axis hormones, uh, and a good example in men is, uh, you know, guys who get really, really lean, even bodybuilders, wrestlers, probably in my case, um, we can basically give ourselves sort of a functional hypogonadism or low testosterone state. Now, it's, we don't have a disease. We just kind of suppressed our whole axis. And that's actually normal. Severe illness, for example, um, and again, maybe severe caloric restriction, et cetera, will do a similar thing to the thyroid axis. Um, and that's why, you know, people start looking into T, uh, reverse T3, which is not <laughs> indicated, by the way, unless for very rare circumstances, we know it'll go up in this circumstance. Um, and on the other hand, females, you know, the female athlete triad, the when they lose mm -hmm. their menstrual cycles, for the same reason, they get, they, you know, too low of an energy intake, really lean body habit as it happens in high level athletes. Um, not good for just the overall situation, not good for bones, because estrogen is good for bones. Um and so, so yeah, to some degree, that's true. On the other hand, um, usually what you hear about out there from someone who's not practicing real medicine or whatever, they're trying to sell people something, just take a man, more, more than a grain of salt and, and consider that a red <laughs> flag. But, but there's certainly some truth to it. And yeah, uh, yeah so yeah, um, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the medicine definitely has some like specified areas where the diet can affect your hormones, but it seems to be primarily like negatively affects. So if you don't eat enough food and you're not actually fueling your body, your hormones are going to like shut down because quote unquote, making this simplistic, they don't have enough energy, right? Um, and then I think most of the time when you think about it from uh, like the social media perspective or the quackery perspective, it's like, um, oh, it's the lectins which I'm sure you've heard this, obviously. Yeah. Which, it's the lectins that are causing you to have all these hormone issues. Yeah. And that um, just, there so, is no evidence. I mean, that doesn't make any sense because what's what's a favorite food that has lectin in it? Uh, tomato. Like any sort of tomato. I, I mean, I eat a shit. To, I eat a lot of tomato sauce. Everyone knows tomatoes are good for you. So like that is some of that stuff is just out. Doesn't make any pragmatic sense, you know? Um, oh, a couple other ones. So just for fun for everyone. Um, you know, if, like anorexia, which is not a good situation, but it's a really low energy intake state, right? Cortisol actually goes up. So that's normal. So we have high levels of cortisol when we have really low levels of uh, energy intake. And um, growth hormone actually goes up. But then the something called the IGF-1 that the, the growth hormone makes in the liver actually goes down. These are things that we sometimes will see in these situations. But so yeah, and it, it usually has to do with energy intake and stuff like that. And there, again, there are a few other nuances that we could 
go down rabbit holes, but we won't. Yes, for the most part out there, we just want to like say that most of the stuff that talks about hormones and diet is quackery. Mm-hmm. I think um, Dr. Nadolsky here mentioned almost all of the ones <laughs> in medicine that are very common, at least. Obviously, there's going to be rare outliers in cases. But if someone's telling you that like the water you're drinking because it's not purified seven times oh, yeah. is causing your hormones to go out of whack, then that's probably not the case. <laughs> and if you do feel there's some problem with your hormones, then go see someone like Dr. Nadolsky, who's an actual endocrinologist instead of someone who got their license on Google. That's a high heel tip. Good, good, good idea. (laughs) And then uh, lastly, I know this isn't on the outline, but we touched on it a couple times in this, is adrenal fatigue. And that's another one of those kind of nebulous terms out there. What is it? Does it really exist? And like, what is the actual problem with the adrenals when it happens? Yeah, so again, going back to that, that axis, right? The hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the adrenal axis, mostly talking about cortisol, because that's what these guys uh, talk about. So yeah, there is no such thing as adrenal fatigue, but people have fatigue and then sure shoot. And if you go to a a functional or a naturopath or whatever, um, if you go in with fatigue, they're going to tell you have adrenal fatigue. Well, there are very real clinically important diseases of the adrenal glands that cause adrenal insufficiency. And that's a huge deal. You have severe, you know, if your adrenal glands don't work anymore, them themselves, you have severe weight loss, uh, low blood pressure, electrolyte abnormalities. You also get tan, by the way, uh, because of the um, old Addison disease. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, and then on the other hand, if you have a, you know, hypothalamus pituitary disorder, um, uh, you won't have as much as uh, the dramatic issues, but you'll, you'll feel uh, not well, and it's, and it's a life-threatening sort of condition. Um, but yeah, adrenal fatigue is not any of those. And in fact, a lot of the issues that people kind of blame on it uh, don't make any sense for, for cortisol. Um, but uh, you know, when someone has fatigue, the fatigue is real, though. So this goes back to finding out what is actually the cause. So if people tell you have adrenal fatigue, they are not being holistic by definition of the actual term. They are making something up. That's not true. And so we need to figure out what is the cause of it. Now, if they end up saying it's adrenal fatigue and it happens to be you're just a fatigue because you're overstressed, your diet's poor, your exercise is poor, and you're not getting enough sleep and they help you fix that, well, that's great. But unfortunately, they called it the wrong thing. And, um, but the problem is they might miss something real. You know, one, they might miss real adrenal disease, which would be, which would be, uh, catastrophic. That would be catastrophic. Right. I mean, they probably, those types of people probably aren't going to miss thyroid stuff, but you might get inappropriately treated for that, but you might miss something real. Um, and, uh, and that would be a shame. Um, and it happens all the time. Unfortunately, we, we get people all the time that come in for, you know, they said they were told of adrenal fatigue and it turns out to be something different. It's oftentimes not even in my wheelhouse, you know, like anemia or something. Yeah, um, definitely. I think there's a lot of things within endocrinology that are not evidence-based out there. And it's nice to have an evidence-based, like practicing actual doctor endocrinologist (laughs) talk about all these things because it gives like credibility to what's real and what's not. That's one of the things that we hope to do with this podcast is because there's so much BS out there and we want to clear some of that up so that we have listeners out there with good information so that if either they have an issue, they can get it addressed properly, or if they know someone who has an issue, they can uh, give them some good resources and some like credible people to go get it taken care of. I'm glad you're doing it. It's great. I appreciate you for coming on and for spending time to do this. Um, Dr. Dulce, he's actually sitting in a patient room right now, <laughs> um, for those of you who are not watching this video. But we want to thank you for coming on. We have one last question for you, and that is the final two-minute famous coffee shop question. That is... 
if you're at a coffee shop getting coffee, someone recognizes you, asks you, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in two minutes? So I think I could get them to tell me their general dietary habits, exercise habits, and sleep habits in about 20 seconds. And then I could give them a minute and a half of some personalized recommendations. If they drink sugary sweetened beverages, I will adamantly plead with them to get rid of that. Um, if they don't mind switching to diet, I will do my best to argue against the fear mongering out there that goes against artificial sweeteners. Um, uh, stay tuned for a publication coming out in endocrine practice on that point counterpoint, by the way. Um, and, uh, and then other, again, going back to the, all the dietary things, I'm pretty sure I could give them a few little recommendations to tweak their diet in favor of lower refined processed foods in favor of more whole foods and just some other, if, in fact, if we're in a coffee shop, they might be getting a, a, you know, a huge macchiato <laughs> with like a thousand calories. And, and I would probably get them to switch that to a big coffee with like a protein shake as the creamer. That's one of my favorite go-tos for patients. Um, and that can be like a meal replacement. And then of course, helping them come up with any type of exercise habits um, that we can just start with just a habit. I tell people just give me five minutes of anything. I don't care. Pretend you're exercising. We'll go from there. Right. And then, um, and then the sleep and stress reduction. And I just say, Hey, easier said than done. I get it, but we got to find a way focus on it. That's it. Pers personalized approach through and through. I like how you talk to them, <laughs> ask them what they're going on in their life yeah. and then kind of adjust the base on that. That's Absolutely. actually, I think surprisingly one of the first time someone's like mentioned it that way in that two minutes. So Props to you for All doing right, that, staying cool. true to the theme. Yeah. All right. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. Um, is there any like last like high yield thing you want to say? Uh, you know, not really other than I, you know, I love what you're doing. And so, yeah, if we can get some of this, you know, healthy behavior, lifestyle is medicine stuff out there, um, you know, we'll do better as a society for sure. That's great. Appreciate it. Your socials will be all over the show notes. Right. Go follow him. He has great content. Thank you all for tuning into another episode. Thank you. Hey everyone, this is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-B-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.